how you participate in these spaces reveals and shapes who you are. So be mindful about that. You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sala. And this is the podcast where we interview experts, gain a bit of wisdom, use philosophy and law to talk about current events and societal issues. Rethink. Rethink. <laughs> Thank you, Rudy. I've veered from the script. I like it. I like it. I like, I like improv. Well, what we're doing in the spirit of Socrates is we're learning what we didn't know we didn't know. So we're interviewing different experts about the ideas that underscore their professions. And our guest today, we've had on before, Dr. Angela Gorell. We talked with her about her book, The Gravity of Joy. She's doing a book tour right now. So we wish her the best of luck. That book was so good. And the podcast episode, I think it was called Understanding Joy. Yeah. And I think, Rudy, you and I, when I was editing it, I realized that we had both just read her book before we interviewed her, like right before. And I think both of us were kind of struck with the book itself because it was just a fantastic work. Yeah, she was so she was so honest and vulnerable in the book. And then as we learn, not only from that book, but through the podcast episode that we recorded with her about her other passions, about rethinking social media and how to properly prepare the younger generation, the younger society to use social media in, in, in a way that that's not harmful. I think we immediately said literally right either in the middle of that episode or towards the end, hey, will you do this again and talk about that book? Yeah, yeah. So the gravity of joy, we were talking about her working on the project of what is joy and at the same time dealing with grief in her own personal life. And so really, it was just such a wonderful episode. She's so thoughtful, so amazing. I highly recommend the book. And you're right, we had to say, please come back on the show to talk about your other book about social media, Always On. And that book is also a great guide, I think, for anyone who's a parent or even some sort of a spiritual advisor, because she's looking at social media through a theological lens, which is something you wouldn't normally put together, right? Social media and theology. But she makes it work and has us look at social media not as bad in and of itself, but for us to be aware of how we use it and that it has this potential for reaching out to connect with people, let them know that you support them, let them know if they're having a bad time, that you're there for them, that there are so many ways to get engaged in social media that are constructive and that can lead to the good life. And what struck me about the book is whether or not you have any religious leanings one way or the other, if you just take it from a historical context, there's a lot of historical references and what's interesting about it is, you know, if you think about it, like the letters that were written in, in the early the beginnings of, of the Christian religion, that was like an early form of social media back in the day. And it just really make, makes you rethink history, religious history, and like, you know, new technologies um, have been introduced. And social media is just another way of doing that. Social media isn't going to destroy humankind, right. notwithstanding what you hear out there. We're not going to let it destroy humankind. We're going to adapt. We've been able to adapt before. We're going to be able to do it again. You just got to put, you know, your thinking cap on. Right. And I think that something else we get is that the way you are on social media is an extension of yourself. And to keep that in mind, if you're just scrolling and being passive, that's not healthy for you. That doesn't allow you to engage with other people. It keeps you away from other people as well. Yeah. And so it's just, you know, we also learn what the pitfalls are to not depend on it for the instant gratification, but to really use it as 
a way to let other people know how you're doing and to reach out to others. So it's a great book, Always On. Okay. And <laughs> let's talk about Always On. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> What inspired you to write Always On, to look at social media through a theological or specifically a Christian lens? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in fall 2011, I was a PhD student. And at the same time, I was hanging out with youth as a youth minister at a church. So every other Sunday night, I would hang out with these youth. And the more that as the fall went on in 2011, the more and more smartphones started showing up in youth group. When we would hang, you know, so that's basically just getting together with teenagers, playing games, talking about their lives, you know, trying to like give them spiritual guidance, mentorship. And so, but I started noticing that these phones were showing up and then that social media platforms were being dropped into conversation more. And as someone who was a PhD student, I started to, to, you know, the sort of researcher side of me would click on every once in a while while I was hanging out with these youth. And I thought, how is social media how is it changing or shaping their sense of like who they are, their identity formation? How is it impacting their religious practices or their sense of who God is or how they should love other people? How is it impacting their relationships with other people? And so I decided to dedicate my dissertation and a lot of my work prior to my dissertation during my PhD studies to understanding social media's impact on people's lives. I would have never connected social media with Christianity. And so I think something that I thought was really interesting was when you write that Christian texts and theology has always made an effort to reach out to people. Like you've got the letters of Paul, you've got scrolls. So why not look at social media as having the potential for reaching other people? And once I think you look at social media as an, as an extension of interaction in this rather beautiful way of connecting with people, then it kind of, it made me, as I was reading your book, made me look at different ways in which I'm liking or I'm choosing to respond or I'm replying. If I'm thinking about it in terms of, you know, I get, let's see, I guess what I want to say is that I think social media has made us bifurcate our notion of self and that there's the online self and then there's the in-person self. What you have done, it seems to me, is by connecting this with Christianity, as you are saying that these two things are not separate, that the way in which you reach out to somebody mirrors, um, can still mirror a Christ-like behavior. What do you think yeah, about that? Is that no, a fair yeah. assessment? Yeah. I want to, I want to make sure that I say that it's both, it goes both ways that both our practice. So the sort of habits, beliefs, um, desires that make up our lives, our in-person lives, our in-person interactions, the way that we are and the things that we do in physical settings give shape to our interactions, our activities, desires, and beliefs in digital spaces, right? So we bring all of that, like who we are, what we believe, what we hope for, what kind of people we want to be, the way that we treat other people, we bring that into digital spaces for better or for worse. So we live hybrid lives. We are who we are both in person and in digital spaces. Um, and they're constantly like the things we do in digital spaces, the conversations we have, what we learn impacts our in-person conversations, our in-person activities and habits and beliefs and the same, you know, back and forth. I also, I want to say though, that there's a back and forth. It's not just that we use social media, but social media uses us. It also mm -hmm. shapes, you know, as we are on in digital spaces, as we're using different aspects of a device, different buttons on platforms, engaging with it, 
social media shapes us as well to desire particular things, to believe particular things, to do different, like the like button gave us an activity to do that many of us took up. You know what I mean? Yeah. I made a note here of Aristotle <laughs> because one of the things that we learn from Aristotle is that essentially you are what you do. And you say something that's similar to that tone. I'm, I think I'm still in the first section where you're talking about diminished humanness. Yeah. And this also really hit me. The real issue at hand is that these lines of thinking can change what you believe is humane and permissible online, makes you ignorant of the fact that the new media engagement both reveals and shapes aspects of who you are and cause you to believe that what you do and say online is somehow detached from who you are connected to and responsible to and who you are called to be. And I think that that is a really, like I said, I've talked about that in terms of Aristotle, that it's such an important lesson that I've told my students that when you are writing something online, whether it's a review or whatnot, if it's anonymous, it doesn't matter if nobody knows that that's who you are, you are still defining yourself by writing these things and you have to ultimately live with yourself. If you write cruel things online, you are a cruel person. It doesn't matter. Even if nobody else knows it, you are defining yourself. If you are kind and charitable online, then you are a kind and charitable person. Yeah. And I mean, people tell me that all the time. I mean, people want to distance themselves from their actions, from what they say online and these sorts of things say, oh, that's not me. Or that's like, that's a fake version of me. That's not the real me or something like that. I'm like, no, it's you. Like if you're the one typing the words, if you're the one going to these things, if you're the one saying this stuff, sharing whatever, that's you. I will say we all have multiple selves. Like I have a self that I'm presenting to you, you know, on this podcast. I have a self that I text with my friends. I have a self when I'm like having a drink with my friends, you know, that's going to be different than when the self that's teaching in front of my classroom. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm like not being honest and open or whatever, you know, it means that I'm being prudent, I think. So I'm not saying that we don't have sort of different versions or like presentations of ourselves. Like we choose to show this side of ourselves in this space and this side of ourselves, we feel more comfortable in this space. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so social media can definitely be a version of Angela Garrell, you know, and not the entire version, but it's definitely not fake. Yeah. <laughs> not me. Yeah. Yeah. I was also interested in this part where you talked about the notion of brand. I, I noticed that lingo not too long ago because I'd had a couple of different people say to me, like I, let's say I bought a new item of clothing and the person responded by saying, and this happened twice. Oh, that's so on brand. It's a weird way of saying that's so you. It seems like that's yeah. what like, oh, that fits you. Um, I get it. But saying on brand. And it was a strange feeling because all of a sudden it made me feel like what I had picked out was somehow trying to fit some sort of a projection of myself that was disingenuous instead of something that I genuinely liked that fit my personality. So I noticed in this chapter when you are talking to your students about branding and you have to say, you know, you're not a brand, right? Tell us more about that sentiment that the students have and why they seem to have some confusion in unraveling the distinction between what makes them themselves and what makes them a brand. There is a lot that we could unpack there. So I'll just begin by saying that I think that branding, this idea that we have to give a presentation of ourselves that the world will like, want to buy, want to hang out with, be affiliated with, 
social media absolutely gives us the sense that we are not in fact human beings, but that we are a brand, that we're trying to sell ourselves to the world. Generally for young people that the means of selling ourselves to the world, the way of getting people to want to be associated with us, be connected to us, follow us, friend us, these sorts of things is that I, I share constantly how happy I am, how successful I am, and I filter my life in such a way that I'm interesting to you. It is very difficult for all people, but especially young people today who have grown up in a social media culture where we're constantly having to curate our lives for people to figure out the difference between what it's like to share ourselves with people versus sell ourselves to people. And there really is a difference. It's difficult for me to kind of digest the whole on-brand discussion because in business development, which I do a lot of like in my law firm life, I have always kind of taken the position that and maybe this is maybe and this kind of goes into what you guys are talking about about the selves, the online self, the work self, the personal self. But you know, you always have to be yourself. But I've kind of always taken the position that even if you're a young attorney working in a big law firm, you yourself are a business. And so I've kind of I've kind of taken that that kind of mindset of everything that I do, everything that I that I'm working on, everything that I'm working on. I am my own personal business, even if I don't if I didn't even have clients back then. And, and being a business, it really comes on. I mean, being a brand, it's kind of like wrapped up in being a business. So I see the danger in, in thinking about you know yo you don't think of yourself as a brand you know then you then you're just a commodity or you're just buying into consumerism or something. But I do think people in their careers, in particularly, do need to be mindful, uh, especially these days in the days of social media, that anything and everything that you're putting online could have negative impacts on you and in particular, your employment. So, I mean, I'm sure we'll probably talk more about that. I mean, I, I'm not trying to go down any type of a, a tangent here. I just, I guess, you know, I know we have a lot of students that listen to these podcasts. And so I'm highly cautious of stuff being put online. You definitely got to be your true self, but just know that employers, uh, whenever you're applying for a job, are Googling your name and looking at everything that you're putting online too. So it's, it's yeah. like, I don't know. I don't know how to parse that well, out with what we're discussing, but I'm sure Angela might have a couple of thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I don't, I would never tell anyone to not be cautious or like prudent about what they put out there on social media. A hundred percent, I'm with you. And especially young people, that's the thing, they know. They know that employers, their parents, I mean, the hardest part of social media for sure is context collapse, especially for young people. When we're in high school, all three of us, right? When we're in high school, social media was not a part of our lives, right? So the conversation that I have with my friends at the football game, you know, on the benches, like when we're like watching the game together versus like in the hall at school versus in the car riding to school versus on the phone at my house and everything like that. These are all like separate conversations. And I can be myself in a particular kind of way with my friends in all those spaces. And then of course, I'm not gonna always say exactly what I said in front of my friends, in front of my teachers or my parents. You know, when you're 15, when you're 18 or 20, 21, like you're gonna save stuff with your friends that you don't say in front of your parents or your teachers or your future employers. But on social media, 
suddenly we have to realize like all of these different audiences in our lives collapse. Suddenly I want to say something on social media and I, maybe as a young person, especially I'm thinking I'm talking to these people and they're my friends, they're my peers, but I'm, I'm having to realize, oh, my future employer could also be listening to this conversation. Oh, my parents could be too. My mentors, my this and that we can find ourselves feeling like, oh man, how do I say what I want to say with all these different kinds of people in my life listening to me, you know? But I just want to go back to what you said. I think the biggest distinction for me is that I'm not saying that people today don't have a brand. I think we have to accept that we live in a society and a culture that if you're on social media, that you do like likely have a brand. And especially if you run a business, like you would definitely have a brand. But there is a difference to me between saying you have a brand and you are one or you have a business and you are your business. I think that you're more than your business. You're more than your brand. So it's like, how do you help people to realize that too? Because if I am my brand or I am my business and I fail, I make mistakes, that thing collapses, then who am I? You know what I mean? That's a much, much, much better way of saying it. Uh, <laughs> rather, than, rather, than, rather, than, rather than you are a business, you know, you are a business. You're right, the collapse, all of the negative impacts of, you know, if, if a mistake happens or if something crumbles or, you know, do you lose yourself in that? I mean, I, I think I, I need to be better educated about how to properly say this to younger junior attorneys and, and others so that I'm not like, you know, damaging them. I mean, it kind of goes to, I mean, the title of your book is Always On. It's interesting because you were just saying, yeah, if you have a social media account or if you have these things, and I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, but I would argue even if you're not on social media, even if you're like, forget it, I don't have Facebook, I don't have Instagram, I don't have Twitter, doesn't matter. Because unless you're living alone on an isolated island with, with somebody that doesn't have a smartphone, guess what? You are on social media because your friends are taking pictures of you. Your family is taking pictures of you. And whether you're tagged or not, like you're out there. So not There's are you nothing old. worse than that notification for the tagged photo. There is nothing that will get a woman's heart racing more than that email that says you have been tagged. And it's never, yeah. it's never good. It's never, the, the person who's doing the tagging always looks so much better in the photo. It's like bridesmaid syndrome, you know, like you've got the. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's not just women. Like I have untagged countless photos. <laughs> Like many, many, there, there are, there, there are, there are, there are photos sitting in my Facebook that I've like untagged or like haven't even put on my timeline or anything, but I'm sure that's, that was like a lot of what you put. That's why you chose, I'm guessing that's why you chose that title always on, but, but I'm really curious about, is that correct? Or, or cause yeah, the title is, yeah, the no, title is excellent. Thank you. I mean, I think that even people who, um, cause I, cause I talk to adults a lot and you know, if I'm doing workshops or whatever about me, social media, I talk to people who are like, oh, I'm not on social media. So I don't really know why I'm here. And I'm like, well, do you email every day? Do you text people? Do you use streaming services like Netflix to watch TV? Then you're in a new media landscape. You know what I mean? Because even Netflix, you think about it, they're constantly trying to keep you always on too. Netflix, what do they do? They email you. Hey, do you want to finish that show you just started? Binge. The, the idea of things being binge worthy is absolutely connected to this idea of keeping you always on. They want you to binge things. And then they want to email you right after you've binged something and say, do you want to watch one of these five things? I mean, every sort of new media device or like platform of various kinds are trying to keep us always on. And that's a big, I mean, the thing about email, like I, I literally just death by email these days is like normally before email occurred, we could only talk to so many people every week 
and they had to make meetings with us. We had to make meetings with them because like email wants to brand itself as like saving us time. But really it means that I talk to six times more people than I normally would in any given week. I walk away from my email and I have 70 emails after 48 hours. It's unbelievable. I'm just like, what? 70? Yeah, you're, yeah. you're lucky. I, I, get, I get 350 when I wake up um, at 7 a.m. Right. 7 a.m. East Coast right. time in the morning because it's just psychotic. I, you, no one, you, no one emails philosophers. It's, no, because you don't, because you don't answer questions. But speaking of nobody, questions, nobody, nobody, we're not in demand at all. Um, I can see, a, I can see a reverend, I can see a lawyer. It's like we need these people, but philosophers, we're just <laughs> no. Angela, I'm curious about what you're saying about these workshops, um, and and it kind of goes into another question because I'm a little bit ignorant about this because my kids are so young. They're they're only four and a half and two and a half, or they're going to be you know five and three here very soon. This workshops that you're talking about, about how to deal with the new media and everything like that, is that a part of curriculum yet for grade schools and high schools? And if not, doesn't it have to be? Is there a movement out there to try to teach people about the dangers and how to, I mean, it's not dangerous. I mean, it is what it is. Like you need to know that the new media is there exactly to your point. But is that a part of curriculum that you're aware of? And do yeah, you think I, it should be? Oh, I definitely think it should be. I know that the Digital Media and Learning Hub or something, it's a group of people, Mimi uh, Itso, I think is her last name. She does some really good work with K through 12 and learning and, and media. And there's some people doing some good work in the area of digital citizenship. I think they're trying to encourage there to be more education in K through 12 spaces around digital citizenship. But I'm not aware of it, like, you know, becoming a class that young people take or something. I think it gets integrated maybe into some other classes these days. But that's a great question, because I definitely think that a few times, elementary school, middle school, and high school, you should have at least a class each time that talks about digital citizenship, digital literacy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they can wrap that into, you know, some regular civics courses about how our government mm -hmm. works. I was saying yeah, on the last podcast that, uh, that Gwen, that Gwen and I were on about how like civics and basic government, U.S. constitutional, how things actually work. Very few states require that type of education for high school students. I love what you said about being a digital citizen. Like that, that would be great to be wrapped up into like civics in the 20, 21st century type yeah. of a course. I mean, I, I, it's a great idea. It sounds like maybe a title of your next book and, you know, I'd be happy to digital help Digital citizen. It. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think you know, since you and I both focus on the notion of the good life in my intro to philosophy, which I've been teaching for years, and I the first piece of literature that we go over is Socrates' trial, his defense. And I have people have asked, you know, don't you ever get tired of talking about the same thing? And I never do because I think literature can be a different experience with a different audience and you're in a different time in your life. It reminds me of Heraclitus saying you can never step in the same river twice. I think it's the same thing with reading a book or reading a text. You are not the same. The times are not the same. But at any rate, back to this notion of the good life is that I've noticed as the course has gone on and more recently, this discussion about social media, it has made me look at what Socrates was teaching in a different way, in a more profound way. And he specifically says that what it means to live life well, to live the good life, is that to put virtue ahead of all these public or even private goods. That sometimes we think if we have the material stuff or the fame, the honor, then we'll be okay. Because it's actually the reversal. You work on the virtue, on being good, and then all good things will come. And I think about it in terms of social media because what we have done is we have reversed 
value. We have made people believe that what will make their life good is how many other people are paying attention to them. And then the goodness of their life hinges on other people's interaction with them instead of what their own mind or talent wants to develop. And I bring that up because I'm at this part where you're talking about popularity. Um, I'm just going to read this study. This study found that, from your book, (laughs) this study found that compulsive checking can be attributed to a felt need by teens to monitor their own popularity status and defend themselves against those who challenge it. In fact, 61% of teens in the study said they wanted to see if their online posts are getting likes and comments. 36% said they often check social media to see if their friends are doing things without them. 22% wanted to use social media to see how well liked they are. And 21% said they wanted to make sure no one was saying mean things about them online. So all of this time that could be used to developing their own talents or let's say um, Christian like um, a, you know, like a, a meditation or or prayer or thinking about the value of their own life is spent worrying about what other people think of them. That's also a way. Like, I think if you're going through a hard time too, but you spend mo- so much of your time on social media projecting how well everything is, that also makes it infinitely hard to connect with people to let people know. You know what? I'm not okay. Like things, things are not going all that well. Or it's hard for us to even recognize, let's say in the spirit of Christianity, how to reach out to other people if they are in need, if we are consumed with telling people that everything is good. Absolutely. All of the things that you just mentioned are the kinds of things that directly contribute to anxiety, depression, and despair in a new media landscape and loneliness. If you get on social media every day, hoping with the aim, like you're talking about that sort of ultimate aim with which we are postured toward. If our ultimate aim is how can I get more people to like me, Mm -hmm. less people to say whatever else about me, if my aim, and that's the thing, social media is shaped in such a way, the culture itself is shaped in such a way that it causes you to long for affirmation and recognition. Absolutely. And for happiness, you long for happiness. You get on social media and all you want to do is feel as happy as everyone else says that they are. And the more that you post how happy you are to try to keep up with everybody else posting about how happy they are, the higher the likelihood that you're actually going to feel less happy (laughs) because most people do not feel as happy as they're telling everybody else that they are. Mm -hmm. And especially when you post how happy you are and you don't actually feel that way, that sort of distance between what you've just said to the world and how you actually feel can be very, very depressing and feel terrible. And so my invitation in Always On is in a culture that's trying to constantly get you to focus on getting recognition and affirmation for yourself, get on social media and focus on affirming and recognizing other people. When you flip that on its head, it brings you so much more joy and peace in your life and connection to other people. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the other people. When you get online every day looking for other people that you can rejoice with, that you can lament with, you know, you take the time to reply to them, not just an emoji, to message them, take the extra step of texting or calling them, say, hey, I saw this post. I wanted to tell you I'm so stoked for you that you blah, blah, blah. Or, hey, I wanted to take the time to call you because I just saw that your grandparent died and I just wanted to reach out and say, like, I'm thinking about you. Like, you're, you know, you're on my heart today. It's those sorts of things that actually 
genuinely make us feel connected to other people that actually yeah. bring us goodness in our life, right? It's, and that's what you're talking about. Can I focus on cultivating who I am and being the kind of person that I want to be and connecting with other people rather than just trying to like get all the affirmation recognition possible, you know? I love what you're saying here because I think a lot of discussion about social media has focused as though social media in and of itself is bad. And what you are doing is you are saying, no, in and of itself, it's not bad. It all hinges on the way you use it. And you are talking about connecting with people with this as a tool in order to feel more connected to people. Yeah. And what I'm saying, I think there are aspects of social media that actually are bad. So for example, I think that the fact that Facebook counts likes, I wish it would do what Instagram has done now. I think that that very, the, the, the fact that it was created to count likes yeah. is a negative thing. I actually do think that the tool itself is broken in that way. I think that it's malformed. That's what I'll say. I think that they could have created people who work in Silicon Valley and in Austin and in other tech parts of the world, they can create new media for flourishing or they can create it for dehumanization. It's really, yeah. it's up to them. And so I do think that there are aspects of social media that are absolutely deformed, that were made for dehumanization. And then I think there are other aspects of it where it's really trying to encourage human flourishing. And I think it's part of our work as people who are public philosophers, public theologians, public figures, you know, to say as part of our public, hey, the ethics here, like, let's be real, Silicon Valley, you have a lot of power in your hands to create things. You know, and when I would give lectures at Yale about social media, I would straight up look at my students in the crowd and I'd be like, hey, some of you in this room, you're about to go work for Facebook. You're about to go work for Instagram. Human flourishing is in your hands. Be careful about what you create. Be thoughtful about what you create. You know what I mean? And so I do think that they, there's a responsibility there too. But the best thing that can happen to young people today or adults today for all of us is this kind of a conversation that you all are having with me right now. We have to pull back the curtain on social media and we have to help people to see, hey, this is really what's going on here. Your practices, like your habits, your desires, your beliefs are being shaped as you're in these spaces. So be mindful of that. And also how you participate in these spaces reveals and shapes who you are. So be mindful about that. So the more that we can have this kind of frank conversation about what does it mean to have a brand today? What does it mean to be hungry for affirmation and, and recognition today? What does it mean to seek happiness constantly today? The more we can have these conversations that are honest and open with each other, I think the better we'll, we'll all be for it. You know what I mean? What, you know what I'm thinking when, when you say the dehumanizing, I'm thinking about how hard it is to explain that to somebody who's always had a phone in their hand because if you lived, you know, before it, I mean, like when Rudy, you know, Rudy remembers black and white TV. <laughs> I, I still watch black and white television. It's my favorite. I mean, I, I am, that, that's how old, that's how, uh, that's how old I am. Yes. It's very true. Very true. Uh, and there was a time when you had to stand up to change the channel. You had to walk over to the TV. That was my job. Oh, that's why I was born. That. That's why you were born. <laughs> Pretty sure uh, that's the reason why I was born. You, so, you turn in the knob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that to actually explain how it's dehumanizing is difficult for somebody who has always understood getting to know somebody as that flattened version of a person that is on social media. So pre-social media, this idea of having a conversation and recognizing that the person in front of you has a life outside of that moment is seems obvious. I use the example of 
in order to humanize somebody is that next time, you know, you're at a restaurant, I guess after COVID or wherever it is that you are, and you maybe are annoyed, the service is slow, look at the person who is serving you and recognize, just think to yourself, I wonder if they can't wait to have a glass of wine after their shift. You know, I wonder, I wonder what they thought of the end of Game of Thrones. I, um, I wonder if they have a brother or a sister because what you, that will do is it'll immediately take you out of that moment of looking at that person who is supposed to serve you and recognize that they have a life outside of that moment. But I think that with social media, it is difficult to explain that that is dehumanizing just that flattened version and that they have this entire world of emotions and fears and dreams and anxieties and happiness outside of just that picture. So I guess I want to ask you two things. What do you mean by dehumanizing? And then also you wrote about desensitizing us. Could you expand a little bit on how social media participates in that? Yeah, so dehumanizing in the sense that, I mean, I think it can be dehumanizing in the sense that we can't smell each other. Like you were saying, we're unidimensional, right? Oftentimes you don't even see the person you're talking to. So I can't see your facial expressions. I can't smell you. I can't, I don't breathe the same air as you. When I'm in a, a physical space with you, you're more human to me because I get, you know, all those sorts of aspects of who you are. You know, I recognize how your body reacts to what I say. And then I, I see the way you interact with other people. That's humanizing to me. So I'm saying that social media can be dehumanizing just for the simple fact that we only get you know, really generally, uh, you know, some words and every once in a while in a video, we'll get, you know, as more of a sense of who someone is. And then the other thing about it though, is that it actually is, so it can be dehumanizing in that way. It is dehumanizing when we begin to respond to people with hostility, mm -hmm. when we harass each other, when we disrespect one another with what we tweet, what we post, what we share, things that we think a lot of times, like some, sometimes it's just even things that we think are incredibly funny. And yet if we really stood back and thought about it, we couldn't, we wouldn't share that in person because it would be dehumanizing to someone else, you know? So absolutely, I think things like gossip, um, shaming, harassment, hostility, flame wars, all those things are incredibly like wounding actions is what I call them in always on that I think dehumanize us. And that's the thing. They don't just, de when we are, when we are, when we make a racist joke online or share something racist online, we're not just dehumanizing a person of color. We're dehumanizing ourselves. We're minimizing our own humanity. And that's another way. So that, that really contributes to the second part of your question, which is desensitizing. And the more we minimize our humanity and the humanity of other people, the more desensitized we come to other people's pain and suffering, to people's struggle. And that leads to a huge problem of desensitization on the internet is empathy burnout. I think that we encounter so much suffering online the velocity with which we encounter suffering, the amount of suffering that we encounter every single day, day in and day out, it can just make us feel like, oh man, you know, it's another person who's lost someone that they love, another person died by COVID, another person got COVID, another person lost their job, you know, another protest happened, somebody else was shot by police, there's a war going on somebody else, somewhere else, more people are starving, you know, and we just kind of get used to scrolling through all this suffering and we just think, that's just how the world is, I guess. We got to figure out how do we not become, like I was saying earlier, calloused 
to pain? How do we not become numb to it? It's hard, right? Um, Cause like a lot of people, you know, their excuses will be, well, oh, I was just, I was just kidding. I was just making a joke or I was just jumping on what they were saying about a particular group of people. You know, another defense that I've seen is a lot uh, and this, uh, and I've kind of, I've kind of, it's strange because I'm seeing the, this excuse a lot with respect to the, the Capitol riot versus the Black Lives Matter movement um, is, well, I was made fun of. So I'm going to go out and make fun of a whole bunch of other people. You know, that defense of what has happened to you, you know, do do unto others. And, you know, the, the twisting of, of the famous Jesus Christ teaching of do unto others, they do unto you. No, that you do good things under others, not don't do bad things to others. So it's, it's really hard. Like if you're, if you're picked on or if you're made fun of, of as, as a child, you create these defense mechanisms that you can all of a sudden somehow turn into a bully yourself because you know you were bullied. My point is we got to get in there early with children and teach them that, yes, you got to stand up for yourself, but that doesn't mean that you you turn into the bad person that, that has picked on you. And that includes not just you know one-on-one, but that includes online, like teaching kids how to not be bullies online um, and not to you know have responses because somebody said something bad to you, you get to say bad to them very early on is vitally important, I think. Yeah, and the gift of social media, a lot of people think, you know, that social media contributes to more hostility than it would, than it does in in in-person spaces. For me, I feel like that's highly debatable. I feel like a lot of physical space settings are very, like, hostile. But, because for me, I just want to point out that social media even though we're like being asked to be always on by the people who run social media platforms and you know blah 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 and by like just the culture we've created we don't have to we when someone says something to us online or posts something that is oppressive hurtful offensive you know frustrating we actually can walk away for a little while and think about how we want to respond that is the gift of digital media like I don't have to, you know, if you're in my house or in my office or on the street in the grocery store and you say something to me, I have to react right then, respond right then, hopefully respond versus react. But I don't have a lot of time. I've got to really like take a deep breath and respond. On social media, you can actually walk away. We don't think we can, but you can. That is the gift. You know what I mean? What you're saying is it's a... Um... It's a platform. It's a way for you to be the better person, right? I think um, toward the end of your book, when there are these solutions, there's a section here that's called Rhythms of Rest. And I made a note. I love this. I will do that. I'll put my phone aside or I'll take social media off my phone for a day just to give myself time to think about what it is that I want out of my own life because I realize that I get sucked into it too. Like I'm not just, you know, finger wagging at other people on social media. I do the exact same thing and I have to consciously take these steps to, to get away from it, like taking it off my phone so that I'm not tempted. But I think something that also hit me is where you said, it is helpful for a community to talk about the differences between leisure and rest and to talk about healthy ways to resolve boredom that do not entail using new media. And the fact that you use the word boredom there, I think is important because it's true that a lot of the scrolling is as a result of boredom, that we don't know what to do with ourselves and that boredom actually can teach us a lot about ourselves, that it's something that we're afraid of or we need to just fill in this time or whatnot, but that's absolutely not necessary. You can just sometimes be And I think that there's a part of us is thinking you're not allowed to just be, you always have to be doing something. Problem is social media, you're not, when you're clicking on it out of boredom, you are not doing anything. 
you're using all of your mental space to check out other people or see how people, what people think of you. And I also had made a note here is this idea of stepping away is that all major world religions have this, right? Where they have this 40 days of kind of uh, to get this mental and spiritual clarity is that they step away from you know, there's a type of fasting that goes on, you know, the step away from all these things. And then it's a really healthy thing. So I guess in addition to that, I guess my question is, what are some specific ways in which people can deal with boredom as opposed to scrolling? Um, And how can communities of faith reach out and help people to, you know, learn ways to deal with that boredom, that temptation to just scroll for no reason? This is a great question. And I, I, I ask because I think that the thing is, is that I, I don't know that enough people are asking that question, Gwen. Like, I actually feel like that the question you just asked, every religious leader in the world should be asking this question, or even like a humanist leader, you know, there are humanist chaplains, people who are spiritual advisors to other people need to be asking. I think that if we want to, because a lot of spiritual advisors and young people are trying to figure out and people who just help people to discern like the meaning of life and how to spend their time in their life, you know, who um, they're wondering, how do I connect with young people? That's what a lot of people are asking today because they're thinking young people don't seem to be flocking to religion like they used to, right? They don't seem to be into spirituality the way that they used to. I think that if more spiritual leaders were asking that question that you just asked, that we'd have more of a connection with young people because young people absolutely want to know what do I do when I'm bored? I don't know any, because they're, the problem is that they, the only thing that they've ever known to do is to hop on their phone. Yeah. If I'm waiting in a line, I hop on my phone. If I'm at a light at my, in my car, I hop on my phone. If I am walking down the sidewalk, I'm on my phone. If I'm walking across campus, I'm on my phone. You know, I don't know what to do other than if I'm sitting on my couch at home and I don't like anything I'm seeing on Netflix, I, I scroll on, on social media. Yeah, be, be so, lost in your own thought. That's something that I've said. Uh, I've told the students on campus, I'm like, there was a time when you would leave the classroom and you didn't have a phone and you would just walk to the next building and just be alone with your own thoughts. Yeah. Maybe so, we're afraid of that. Yeah. So in my lectures at Yale on the social media, I literally invited young people because I did a survey with them to start the lecture. And I was always like, um, in the survey, what is one feeling or two feelings that come to your mind when you think about getting on social media? And always in the top five answers was boredom. So boredom is a gateway for so many young people to social media. And I think that what we want to do as spiritual advisors is to say, um, or in, if we're just leading, if we're hanging out with young people at all, or if we're just the young people and we want to start this conversation, we want to ask the question, what else can boredom be a gateway to? So Drugs. Can be a gateway. <laughs> drugs, for sure. Ready. Ready. No, for sure. Right? Right, Angela? Drugs. I mean, drugs. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure in your teaching, but seriously, it's yeah. true. No, I mean, it's With young people, that's absolutely also the case. But what Gwen is saying is that it's also a gateway to self-reflection. It's a gateway. And then I'm going to add, it's a gateway to creativity, to imagination. Oh, yeah. Those are good things. Think yeah, of the, a new the, book. The good get, you could write a gateways. sci-fi novel. You could. You could if you're <laughs> Yes. You you yeah, you can make something. And so, but I, that is the question. What do we do? Because I'm also, I'm very guilty of this. Very guilty. Mm-hmm. Whenever I get bored, all the different scenarios I just listed, it is very easy for me to want to hop on and just scroll and like not 
be alone with myself. Because that's the thing, being alone with ourselves is pretty terrifying. So, um, right? Because then we have, to, we have to really think about who am I? Who am I becoming? And nobody wants to think about that stuff. You know, not, I mean? me. not me. That's that's one of the most terrifying things. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I, everything that you're saying about, uh, yeah, going to the phone because you're bored and all these other types of things. I, I totally agree with you. I am so guilty of that. I don't, I don't want to sound weak. I don't know if I could ever break that habit. I, I really don't. Uh, it's, it's terrible. Really is. But that's the thing. When you do, and it really does take an invitation. And every, like, like Gwen said, every great religion in the world has a way of like inviting people into some sort of fasting. So, like Jew, the Jewish community, the Sabbath is an incredible. It's a day to unplug from everything. You know, um, Muslims have these days of fasting, right, where you get to fast not just from food, but also you can fast from technology. Um, you know. Christians and Catholics, you know, Christians and our Catholics are Christians, excuse me, Protestants and Catholics is what I meant to say, um, have Lent. So you have 40 days when you can, you know, and so I do invite everybody that I talk to about social media, try to commit to a few hours a week or one day a week or one day a month, one week a year. Maybe just start there. When you let go of as many devices and forms of technology as possible, and enter into boredom and see where it takes you. And for me, for example, it started two summers ago. I decided to take two weeks, go hiking in the woods. And I went, this one was like a 55 mile hiking trip in um, several different places. And I didn't answer email for two weeks or get on social media, nothing. And like barely even texted anyone. It was just to like make, tell people I got to where I was going. I was safe, like, you know, from hiking all these miles. It was glorious. And I was able then after that trip to take a couple of steps back and to ask myself, what is worthy of spending my time on when it comes to devices and social media? And then you get to kind of regroup and really think about your relationship to social media and what's working for you and what's not. So that's where I would invite people to start is just with a few hours or one day a week or one day a month or one week a year. And then after that time and try to release yourself from as much as possible, even email, then after that time, either journal or have conversation with somebody else and really try to think about what did it teach you? Yeah. You know, what did you gain from that? That's great advice. Love the book. Love everything that you're doing. Thanks. Really do think that you need to start the curriculum to teach our children on a going forward basis. Right and on. you should work on that because- Digital citizen. A digital yes. citizen. I love, I, it, it's great. Right. Uh, so good to see you. Good to see you too. Bye, Rudy. Bye. I'll just wrap up so that we can plug um, some of your work. Last time we had you on, it was on Understanding Joy. So you have recently done an audio recording of that. When is that available for everyone? It should be available by the end of February. Okay, great. Yes. All right. And okay, then- February, early March, yeah. Okay. So we have always on Understanding Joy. I have to ask, do you have another project in the works or are you just basking in the, wait, I'm, I'm already guilty of the social media thing of like, okay, well, what's next? What's next? So do you have any projects that you're working on now or are you just continuing to um, have discussions about these two books? I'm, I'm primarily yeah, having discussions right now about Always On and about my other book, The Gravity of Joy. So doing a lot of 
teaching workshops, speaking lectures about these two things. Everybody wants to talk to me about joy and new media and I'm so stoked about it. Not everyone. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm saying everything that I'm being asked to speak about is about one of those two things. And I'm very happy about that. You know, so I'm delighted that people want to talk about new media. People want to talk about joy, especially in 2021. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's mostly what I'm doing, but I am, um, I'm doing, I'm teaching a class in the fall. So I'm teaching a class right now about the meaning of life. And I'm teaching a class in the fall that's called Stories to Tell. And it's going to be a class with both students from Baylor, where I teach, and students within a prison. And they're going to be in the same class together. Wow. And we're going to learn about how we draw wisdom from the stories that we tell and live and other people have told and live. So anyways, my next project probably, and you're the first person that's ever asked that has asked me this, is uh, I think it's about wisdom and how do you develop wisdom and how do you learn to make decisions? How do you learn what to say yes to and what to say no to? How do you learn to listen to the heart? Yeah. Hey, I'm totally okay. When, when that's, when that's worked on, we're, we have to have you back on the show. Cause I love, I mean, well, philosophy means love of wisdom. That's mm -hmm. what, you know, and it's a pretty no. big ballpark. So um, I like that question that the distinction between wisdom and knowledge and I don't know if you've read yes. this by Nicholas Carr is Google making us stupid. And I've had to, um, I've gone over that with the students of the distinction between information versus knowledge. I give the example of, let's just say you and another person read 1984 in high school, or no, you read 1984, the entire book, the other person Wikipedia it. You take the exam, you both get an A. Do you both know 1984? And so we have to go through, well, what is the difference of experiencing the book, reading it versus just looking it up online? Despite the fact that you both earned an A on the exam, that doesn't really reflect who knows it. So I think a discussion about wisdom is going to be very, very exciting because we're forgetting that because of social media and the digital age. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so I think a lot of us find ourselves and I found myself this is a story for another day. But Googling questions in 2020 that I was like, why am I asking Google this instead <laughs> of searching within my own heart? You know what I mean? That is a whole nother. So maybe Gwen, I felt like I need to interview you for this book, but I also for this book on wisdom, I wanted to look at how incredible people throughout history have made hard decisions like through wisdom. Yeah. And what we can draw on from then, you know, I also want to draw on Ecclesiastes where, you know, the whole thing in about the meaning of life and like, how, what's the point of this? And how do I discern the point? And how do I be wise about what, how to spend my time? You know? So anyways, I'm stoked about that. And it's so good to see you as always. It's good to see you. Okay, Angela, thank you so much. And again, I'll link all your stuff in the, in the show notes. And it's just a pleasure to read your work. I absolutely, I absolutely love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash good is in the details. We have tiers there where you can get extra content. If you sign up for the highest tier, which is $10, you'll get a free copy of the raffle. We're also on Instagram, good is in the details pod, or you can email good is in the details pod at gmail.com. And if you're listening on Apple podcasts and you enjoyed the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. And until next time, bye.